So if you would like to grab out your Bibles, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, and we're reading verses 5 to 36 today. So the scene is that Jesus is at the temple, he's been teaching there and he's now with his disciples and it is the last week of Jesus' life. So chapter 21, starting at verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful 
or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Um, I want to give my endorsement to the senior youth camp. Uh, If you've got teenagers uh, who are in years 10 to 12, or if you are one of them, uh, and even if if your kids haven't connected in in youth group at this point, uh, this really is a coming-of-age camp. uh, And my experience has been there's been a lot of people like Chloe who have just been so impacted by sitting in God's Word for a number of days, uh, it really is a, a transformative uh, opportunity. Uh, so if you can, uh, hook your kids uh, into that. Now, I want to tell you, a few weeks ago, our staff team were all trained in first aid. Uh, even me, uh, here's my certificate. I tried to get a, I, I couldn't. I didn't have a photo to show you of our whole team to prove it, but here's my certificate. <clears throat> and you can see... You know, I can provide pulmonary, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, right, CPR. <clears throat> it wasn't a sort of anyway, spelling test. Um, basic emergency life support, you know, the defibrillator, you know, EpiPen can inject that. Uh, and this is all in theory, right? So I've got, I've got the theory uh, all sorted out. But yes, yeah, so we, we did this training. And as I was uh, sitting in this training, I reflected that there's two big mistakes you can make in an emergent, a first aid emergency. And that is complacency or panic, right? You don't want either complacency or panic. You don't want to be complacent because every minute can make a difference. Uh, you know, especially if it's a cardiac arrest, uh, every minute is, is vital. Or if someone stopped breathing... Uh, if their heart has stopped. Uh, And so you don't want to be complacent. You you don't want to be ill-prepared. There's a certain urgency that the moment requires. But you don't want to panic either. You know, you don't want to start screaming your head off and uh, you just don't don't want to raise that, you know, alert. You you don't want to start CPR while the patient is still breathing and conscious. Uh, There's a whole lot of things where panic just doesn't do you any good. So here, here is my takeaway. You want to be calm but decisive. And I've seen this in action. Um, I've seen people in an emergency situation step in with, with, with real decisiveness but also a calm uh, and a, a sense of just following a process. And it makes an incredible difference. Uh, and it just brings a calm to others uh, and people kind of respond, and you actually see people uh, helpfully motivated to action, not running around like you know headless chooks, uh, which is not what we're after. And and it's interesting; those things are true of first aid. They're true of parenting, aren't they? Right? Not complacent, not panic, calm, but decisive. So many situations in life require us to be calm but decisive. And, and what will enable us to do that <clears throat> is being thoughtful ahead of time, being trained up, being ready to step into that moment. Now, Jesus is preparing us today 
for an even bigger emergency than some first aid emergency. Uh, He is warning us and preparing us for the end of the world. And he warns us the danger of complacency, the danger of just being apathetic, being unaware, but he also doesn't want us to panic. He wants us to be calm, decisive, watchful, ready, and prayerful. So if you want to be ready for that day, which we all must face one day in the future, then listen to Jesus' words carefully this morning. Uh, He's preparing us for the things to come. So Luke chapter 21, verse 5, some of Jesus' disciples were remarking how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. See, now we've entered the last week of Jesus' life. Um, Each day, Jesus and his disciples, they're they're living uh, outside of Jerusalem. They come from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. They enter the temple courts. um, And as they come into the temple this day, the disciples remark on just how magnificent it was. The temple was the most significant building in ancient Israel, way back 1,000 years before the coming of Jesus, Solomon, the son of David, had built this temple. Um, it was a place where... Oh, thank you, brother. That's great. See that decisive calm? <laughs> and Alan, Alan was there uh, at their first aid training. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, so the temple was a place where God would meet with his people forgiveness of sins, where you'd worship God, gather with his people. And the temple, you can see from the scale of it, that it became a symbol of permanence, security, of protection. Uh, And it reminded them of the God who stood behind the temple, uh, the great God of all the universe. But in 586 BC, the Babylonians came, surrounded the city, overpowered it, destroyed the temple, the grief, the bewilderment, the lament of God's people was profound. Uh, Tears pouring out from the hearts of God's people. That was the, the, the great tragedy of the Old Testament was when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Uh, about 70 years later, the temple was rebuilt. But it really was a disappointment And anyone who had seen the former temple just felt a little sense of disappointment about this new temple. And so, hundreds of years later, you know, after lots had gone on and the temple had become even more run down, King Herod the Great had made it his life's work to restore and rebuild this temple in the heart of Jerusalem. Here's a large-scale model. I'll just show a little bit of video, right? This is a large-scale model that someone has kind of recently built of Herod's temple. Uh, And this great renovation project was only just complete uh, as Jesus and his disciples were entering their ministry. Uh, And so as they walked through the gates of this great temple, uh, the the disciples remark, wow, you know, how, how magnificent. The temple, once again, was a symbol of permanence, security, protection uh, at the heart of God's people. 
But Jesus' reply is scandalous. Verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Can you imagine the anti, anti-climax or the, the bewilderment of the disciples? Are you serious, Jesus? How could that be? Could history really repeat itself in such a devastating way? And so the disciples asked two questions. This is chapter 21 of Luke, verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, Jesus' answer has puzzled and intrigued Christians ever since. Uh, And I imagine a lot of you read these verses uh, in growth group this week. Uh, And a lot of you would have come away feeling a little bit confused, bewildered. Is that any nods out there? A couple of nods. Um, it, It really is hard to work out exactly what Jesus is talking about in these verses. Um, is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD? Uh, So verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its destruction is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. Historically, we know that only about 35 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Roman armies did surround the city. Not one stone was left on another. If you've heard of the Wailing Wall, uh, where Jewish people make a pilgrimage uh, to pray at the Wailing Wall, that's all that is left of Herod's great temple, just some big stone rocks that represent part of a wall. Just like the Babylonians had done 600 years earlier, It happened again in 70 AD. But there are parts of this chapter that seem bigger than what happened in 70 AD. So let me take you to um, Luke 21, verse 25, where Jesus says, There'll be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Right? This sounds bigger, doesn't it, than, than the destruction of one building. This sounds like the end of the world. Um, and so many Christians throughout the centuries have read this chapter and, and seen it as forecasting the end of the world sometime, perhaps even within our lifetime. Uh, And uh, lots of energy has been put into working out how do we we read the signs against current events that are going on in our world. But the problem with this is verse 32, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. This generation certainly not pass away. The catastrophe Jesus is talking about in Luke 21 was not 2,000 years in the distance. It was something that would happen within their lifetime, uh, perhaps even within days, hours. Uh, And 
Jesus has been living with that kind of urgency, hasn't he? As he's faced Jerusalem, there's been a heaviness, a weightiness. As he comes into Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because he knows that destruction is coming. He knows that God's people are missing a key moment. They did not realize the moment of God's arrival amongst them. So what are we meant to make of this passage? Now, firstly, I want you to notice that we're dealing with a type of literature called apocalyptic. Uh, And apocalyptic is crisis literature. Um, So in the Bible, you have lots of different literature types that make up the whole of the Bible. You have historical narrative, you know, just stories of things that have taken place in history. You have poetry and song. You have proverbs and, and wisdom. You have... The, the codes of law, and you have apocalyptic. And apocalyptic, so much of it is about God dramatically intervening in our world and bringing in his kingdom. It's like this world is going to be wrapped up and God is going to, God is going to bring his kingdom in. Um, you know, Daniel had a picture of these, this statue of the kingdoms of the world and then this big rock from heaven came and smashed. Now, that's the character of apocalyptic. It's the, it's the dramatic invasion of God's kingdom into our world. Uh, so can you think of what books of the Bible are particularly apocalyptic in style? So Revelation is, is the obvious one in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Books like Daniel, parts of Zechariah, Isaiah, Joel. Uh, there's a bunch of kind of apocalyptic language. And I just want to uh, describe what we're dealing with with apocalyptic. And I want to do it, so we, I'm going to give you a break just to sit back and watch a little video. Uh, and this will be instructive, but also just, just enjoy the moment. It's, it's an introduction to Baz Luhrmann's movie, Romeo and Juliet. Right? It's, the, it's the first scene. Uh, here it is. <coughs> Now, isn't that evocative, hey? Like, do you feel like you want to watch the movie off the back of that? Like, it's, it's, there's just so much going on, so many images being thrown at you. 
Uh, and they all make sense if you've watched a movie a number of times or if you've read Romeo and Juliet. All these associations come together. They're not meaningless, but I don't think we're meant to necessarily spot everything, but it really creates an overall impression very quickly, doesn't it? And it is incredibly evocative. Uh, it, it shows you that we're dealing with Romeo and Juliet, classic in English play, but it's set in a modern city, uh, in a mafia kind of gangland context, and it's just highly stylized. But the power of in the introduction is not that you understand everything that's going to happen in the movie, but rather you get an overall impression. Uh, and if you get that overall impression, uh, it, it, the, the introduction has achieved its goal. And so there's a whole lot of images and ideas that are just thrown at you in quick succession. I think apocalyptic is a lot like that. It's about the catastrophic intervention of God in our world. And there's so many evocative ideas drawing on Old Testament imagery, drawing on imagery of judgment in the Old Testament, uh, drawing on things they know of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, the coming of God's kingdom. <clears throat> and I think whilst all the details are important and true, I think it's the overall impression that we're meant to stand back and take hold of. Uh, and I think this is what we've got in Luke chapter 21, graphic, dramatic, evocative language now, I want to take you to one of the crucial details, uh, and that's, um, that's there in verse 27 to 28, right? So we've got this, this big, dramatic kind of speech from Jesus, but Jesus says, verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The coming of the Son of Man is one of the central, critical events of this chapter. And if you know your Bibles, you'll know that the Son of Man is a key figure in Old Testament apocalyptic uh, literature. So Daniel chapter 7. So let me take you to Daniel 7. Just, just take this part of what Jesus says and put it in its context. So Daniel 7, where does Daniel fit into Old Testament history? The temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. Daniel is now in exile in Babylon. So it's right at that heart of that Old Testament tragedy. Um, the prophet has a dream, a number of dreams, but in Daniel 7, he, this dream he sees four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and some fourth beast that is just grotesque. Um, you know, the lion has wings like an angel, the leopard has four heads, the fourth beast has ten horns. They're destructive, powerful. Now, what do these beasts represent? Well, these beasts represent kingdoms of our world, kingdoms that are powerful, corrupt, and inhumane. Right. Inhumane is the key word. They are beastly kingdoms. And that is so many kingdoms of our world are like that, that they, they're, they're, there's no humanity to them. And they, rather than ruling 
as part of the image of God, as a representative of God, they oppress God's people and they hate and oppose God. These are the beastly kingdoms of our world. But then Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, God himself seated with all power and authority, and God strips the beasts of their power and their rule. And he gives all power and authority to a man, to a man made in his image. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man is human, made in the image of God. Unlike the beastly kings, this is a good king who is worthy to approach God and worthy to receive all glory, honour, and power. He is the one who will usher in God's eternal kingdom. And so we come forward 600 years with this great prophecy, apocalyptic prophecy hanging in the air. And we find Jesus constantly refers to himself as the son of man. And we're left wondering why this way of describing himself. Is he, is he referring back to Daniel 7? And he's been warning his disciples that the son of man must suffer and be rejected before on the third day being raised to life. And he said this again and again. But when will Daniel 7 be fulfilled? When will the Son of Man receive all glory, honour and power? Well, as you keep reading Luke's Gospel and into the book of Acts, Jesus has already received all glory, honour and power in his death, resurrection, and he ascended to the Father to receive the kingdom. And he was given all authority and power. Jesus rules history even now as the Son of Man. Just let me take you to a couple of passages that kind of show unpacking of this. So Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders of Israel At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer? You cowards? But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. From now on. Now is the time when the kingdom is going to arrive in power. And in Luke's second volume, the the book of Acts, remember um, Stephen. Um, Stephen is on trial because he was teaching in Jesus the destruction of the temple. Uh, But Stephen had in his mind that, you know, Jesus' prophecy where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And we know that the temple he's referring to is his own body and and Stephen's put on trial for the things he's been saying about the temple and look at the the conclusion of that chapter when the members of the Sanhedrin heard Stephen's speech they were furious they gnashed their teeth at him 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. See, Stephen saw what is really the case. He saw Jesus, not as the crucified one, yes, he has been crucified, but he saw Jesus as the risen victorious king, uh, the son of man with all glory, honour and power. That is the reality right now. That's the reality that Revelation will help us to see as it pulls back the curtain and we see Jesus for who he really is, uh, the awesome, all-conquering king. So back in Luke 21, Jesus is, is helping his disciples capture a sense of urgency of the time in which they are. That, uh, and I think particular urgency is that the events of Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension would, would trigger the start of the end of the world. As Jesus hung on the cross, Luke is really keen to point out the sun turned to dark. You know, there, there was just these ominous signs in the heavens. The temple curtain was torn in two. The beastly forces will gather around Jesus, the Messiah. They will kill him. They will think they have won the day. But Jesus will rise up in victory over evil. And he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, receive the kingdom and pour out the Spirit, ushering in the new age. The end of the world begins with the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. Now, I want to show you this on a diagram. Uh, now, and, and, and look, if, if, you don't, if you kind of got any questions or disagreements with anything I say, you're welcome to come and chat to me, but this is how I, I, I see uh, what Jesus is saying in the rest of the New Testament writers. You've got the old age, this world, corruption, decay, beastly uh, type of leadership and rule is the character of it. But God promised that his kingdom would come and it would be triggered by the enthronement of the Son of Man. And that happens with the death resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. The new age of God's kingdom and the pouring out of the Spirit has begun, triggered by Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. And yet, what we find is that this world continues on. Uh, it, it hasn't come to the dramatic end that we expected. Uh, and we do see after the events of Jesus, the temple is destroyed uh, and I take it that's a sign from God that no longer is the temple, the physical temple, that no longer is that the place where we meet God. Now Jesus is the place where man and God meet. He is the true, perfect, once-for-all sacrifice. But we live in this strange time uh, waiting for the end. So Jesus will come again. Just show us that. So Jesus will return Every eye will see him in the future, and that will be the day of the final judgment, the end of this world as we know it. 
And that is the age when the uncontested rule of Jesus Christ will continue on forever. And so we find ourselves in this strange overlap time the Bible calls the last days. Uh, the time where the, the kingdom of God has come, but it's not evident to all. Jesus rules, but it's not an uncontested rule. There are still many opponents. There are still beastly kings and rulers of our world. So what does it, what does it mean for us to live in these last days? Uh, what, what does it mean for us and our lives? Well, throughout this chapter, Jesus gives a whole bunch of exhortations. So he says things like, watch out, don't be deceived, don't be frightened, stand firm. Don't panic. Bad things are going to happen. Persecution is going to happen. It will seem horrible. But don't panic, don't be deceived, don't be frightened, stand, stand your ground. And come to the end of the chapter, Jesus says, Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will come, will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the whole face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And the disciples who first heard these words failed the very first test that would come their way. So Jesus had told them of the urgency of the time they lived in. He said, watch and pray. On the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will tell them again, watch and pray. And Jesus will then go and pray and pour his heart out to God and and such is the crisis for Jesus that he, his sweat is like drops of blood on his forehead. And yet he comes back and finds his disciples asleep. Uh, exhausted, maybe. But, but just not aware of the crisis that has, that has overtaken them. And so they are unprepared for the events that come in the next few hours. They will run away in panic. They will flee the scene. They will deny ever knowing Jesus. And it's kind of like all those things that he'd warned them about, they fail at the first test. And yet these same men will see Jesus ascend into heaven. They'll be given power from Jesus. He will send his Holy Spirit on them. And they will stand with great courage and testify that Jesus is. God's eternal king. Uh, and you can read about that in the book of Acts uh, if you want to chase that story through. But what about us? While we wait for Jesus' return, Jesus urges us, do not be complacent. Uh, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. Uh, that's, that's our society, isn't it? Just people so caught up with life here and now and its worries and the, living the good life now, kind of oblivious 
of the things to come. So that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. It is so easy to become complacent, isn't it? So easy to become consumed with the things of this world so that that is the only thing I see. And I I take my eyes off Jesus, the king, uh, and his kingdom. And I lose the urgency that I am living in the last days. Jesus is calling on us. I'll show you that little diagram I put up earlier. Jesus is calling on us to be calm but decisive, right? Not complacent, not caught up with this world, but he also wants us not to panic. And that's a good warning for us because surely we live in an age of great panic, don't we? What I have noticed over the last few years is people are willing to catastrophize everything. Uh, And just life just becomes filled with so much drama. And it is is really exhausting. Um, And so we're in an age where people catastrophize everything. And we Christians, we know there is a catastrophe coming. The return of Jesus. We are living in kind of crisis times. And some of us Christians look around and and we see our other brothers and sisters oblivious. It's kind of like, aren't you aware of the time in which we're living? But the response Jesus is looking for is not panic. It's not kind of that doomsday prepping. It's not getting caught up in conspiracy theories that I want to warn you, even amongst Christians, those things can consume so much energy and time. Can you see from this chapter, Jesus is calling on us to be calm and decisive, not complacent and not panicking. Calm, decisive, watchful, ready and prayerful. And if you want to know what you're meant to be doing, what you're meant to be doing is making disciples. Because that's what Jesus will say at the end of this gospel. He'll say it at the end of Matthew's gospel. As he ascends into heaven, there's a job to be done. Jesus must be preached. Disciples must be made in all nations. And so let's start the job here in this place, in our time, making and growing disciples. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's a, there's an urgency to it, but let's not panic. But let's not be decisive either recognize the time in which we live. So I'm going to lead us in prayer to that end. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we want to thank you for your great plan to establish your kingdom, your kingdom of righteousness and justice and love and mercy. The end of evil, the end of corruption, the end of injustice. Thank you that Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. Thank you that he rose in victory over evil, over all the enemies that rallied against him, that you vindicated Jesus and you declared to the world in his resurrection, here is my son, here is my king. 
Thank you that he is now seated at your right hand as your eternal king. Father, we are sorry that so often we can be complacent, that we are sometimes no different from those around about us, consumed by the things of this world. We're sorry that we so often take our eyes off Jesus and lose a sense of urgency. Uh, We lose perspective on the time in which we live. Please help us to be calm but decisive, Not, not complacent, and help us not to panic. You have these things in hand. And so, Father, help us rather to watch and pray to make ourselves ready and help us to make the most of this time to, to proclaim Jesus, to introduce Jesus to our friends and family. Father, we pray that you will do a great work in, our, in this place, in this time of calling people into your kingdom. Even this season of Easter, we pray even as the Lakes Youth Camp comes up. Father, we pray that you'll keep on making and growing deep, resilient disciples of the Lord Jesus so that when he comes again, we pray that that day will be a a joy for us because that is the day we have been longing for, the day of our salvation. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.